Hello, and welcome to episode 8 of the Boston Herald podcast. Today's focus will be on the influence and legacy of the British comedy troupe Monty Python's Flying Circus. This is, of course, inspired by the recent loss of the 7th or 8th Python, Neil Innes, and Terry Jones, one of the six founding members. Graham Chapman died in 1989, and the four other members, John Cleese, Eric Idle, Michael Palin, and the lone American, animator Terry Gilliam, and auxiliary member Carol Cleveland, are still alive. It's been said that the Pythons were the Beatles of comedy, and fortuitously they were formed as the fabs were breaking up. Although the BBC program premiered in 1969, there were three 13-season episodes with John Cleese and six more with the retitled and shortened Cleeseless Monty Python. It would not appear on TV where I lived on Long Island for a few more years, probably 1974. It was shown on the local PBS station and somehow, even though I'd never knowingly heard or seen them, I knew enough to watch the premiere showing. It was on a Sunday night. I remember seeing their picture, the one with Cleese and a chef's hat, in at least one magazine, probably Cream. The Pythons blew my mind like the Beatles and Bob Dylan before them. This was before Saturday Night Live, before Steve Martin really made it big. It was like the Beatles' Christmas records times a thousand. I'd realized I'd actually seen some of the skits previously, I just didn't know they were Monty Python. There was Hell's Grannies and maybe Bicycle Repairman or the Milkman sketch. Uh, probably on Dean Martin's show, or most definitely on the short-lived 1971 series, Marty Feldman's Comedy Machine. They'd also done a disastrous appearance on The Tonight Show with an unimpressed guest host, Joey Bishop, followed by a somewhat more successful one on The Midnight Special, uh, neither of which I was aware of. Monty Python immediately became an obsession. And about half a dozen other loonies from my uh, high school would get together on Monday to discuss and recite the best lines over lunch. One of the gang even recorded the episodes on audio cassette, and he'd bring it in sometimes for us to listen to. Once to decipher the line, Mrs. Belpit, your legs are so swollen. It was uh, repeated throughout the show, but we couldn't figure out what it was. Ironically, all of this was happening while the troupe were planning on calling it a day. Luckily, their unexpected success in the U.S. would soon change all that. The important thing younger people need to understand was that anything like a movie or especially a TV show was something you had to watch in real time. It was a communal event. Home video was not yet common, really. VCRs were not common or available. DVDs and YouTube and Netflix and streaming weren't on anybody's radar. You had to be there or you'd miss it. Even if you did watch it, it was fleeting. Once it was shown, it was gone except maybe on a rerun or in syndication. But that did not seem to be Python's fate. It was not in your control. Probably in 1975, we finally got cable in our home. By then, on the New York affiliate, I believe the show had moved to Thursday evenings, but another PBS station, I'm thinking uh, New Hampshire, but I don't know, maybe it was Connecticut, they had it on two nights earlier. So of course, I'd watch both nights. Actually, you had to. Python often had fake endings because you'd watch it again on Thursday and realize the ending was cut off on Tuesday's broadcast. Imagine my surprise when on one episode, namely number 28, Mr. and Mrs. Brian Norris's Ford Popular, was the name of that episode, after the closing credits, only New York viewers got to see Michael Palin as the bearded character who says, it's, at the beginning of the program, hosting his own talk show, and his guests were Lulu and Ringo Starr. It ended abruptly, as many Python skits did, 
but it indicated the amount of respect some stations paid to one of their most popular programs. Sometimes, Python members would show up at PBS fundraisers, like at WNET in New York. One time, while watching one of them on the big color TV downstairs, uh, since it was getting late on a school night, my father suggested I go upstairs and continue to watch it on the black and white set in my bedroom before going to sleep. He said, uh, there's nothing on TV that will make any difference on a black and white TV anyway, he reasoned. The troupe then advertised their new book, probably also as a fundraising incentive, titled Monty Python's Big Red Book. And the next morning, my father told me the book featured a cover that was not red at all, but blue and yellow. I did ask my father if he would make a donation to WNET, which meant we'd also get a copy of Python's matching tie-in handkerchief album. So he did, and I'd already had a previous Monty Python album titled Monty Python's Previous Album, but this one was a three-sided album. What that meant was that on side two, there were two concentric grooves so that where you place the stylus meant you could either get one of two different set of skits. I even spent time examining the vinyl to educate myself as to which groove led to which program. An added bonus was the addition of Neil Innes to the proceedings. In 1975, the film Monty Python and the Holy Grail uh, premiered. Uh, not only was it probably the funniest film I'd ever seen, but since, as I stated before, there was no indication that this would be so readily available for instant viewing at any time in the future, uh, my friends and I, if we had nothing to do, we'd go to the local movie theater and see the Holy Grail over and over again. And it was funny every single time. My father even went with one of his friends who insisted on calling them Marty Tyson. In 1976, the Pythons were booked to perform at New York City Center from April 14th to May 2nd. I got six tickets for the first Sunday matinee, I think, which would have made it April 18th. All six tickets, I remember, were on one voucher. Looking back, it seems weird that seeing a comedy troupe repeat comedy sketches you'd seen before multiple times and had even memorized, uh, performed live, that it would create such a fevered pitch in the audience, but it did. It was explosive. The surprise highlights for me were by Neil Innes of the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, who had also appeared in the Holy Grail. He did a few of his own songs, the aptly named Short Blues, as Stoop Solo, the Bonzo's soul hit I'm the Urban Spaceman with a tap dancing Carol Cleveland, uh, How Sweet to Be an Idiot, and funniest of all, at least to me, protest song. This was a spot-on parody tribute of Bob Dylan. My five friends all looked at me to see if I would be offended since I was the only Dylan fan in the bunch, but I doubt anybody in the theater left harder than I did. Most Dylan imitations are not very cool and they're pretty obvious. But this one was clever, accurate, and affectionate. And just for the record, the oft-repeated phrase, I suffered for my music, now it's your turn, originated from this bit. To commemorate the event, I bought a poster with the Bruce's song lyrics printed on one side and typical Python zaniness on the other. I also recorded the show on my handheld Panasonic cassette recorder. After the performance, we waited by the stage door, hoping to get the Python's autographs. They apparently stopped doing this after a while, but we were lucky. I don't think I had a writing implement with me, but I got seven of the eight performers. Neil Innes hid behind 
Eric Idle as he met the crowd and then escaped to his left. But the ones I got were a mixture of pen and pencil signatures on the Playbill cover. All the Python members left in limousines except Terry Jones, who missed his ride. I'm not sure why. There was a stalled Volkswagen in front of the theater, and we helped Mr. Jones push it to get it going. I gave one of my friends my Panasonic, and we encouraged him to ask Terry Jones a question. So Paul, for that is his name, went up and asked Mr. Jones, what do you think of New York? Without a pause, he replied in a high-pitched register, better than a dead crab. After the George Harrison financed Life of Brian and their final film, The Meaning of Life, I would kind of follow their careers to a certain extent throughout the years. Saw some offshoot projects, including Eric Idle at Boston's Wang Center, Michael Palin giving a talk at the Coolidge Corner Cinema, and Spamalot on and off Broadway, plus the films A Fish Called Wanda, Yellowbeard, uh, various handmade films, which was George Harrison's company, including Time Bandits, TV appearances on SNL and elsewhere, and best of all, Faulty Towers, and The Ruddles, my absolute favorite of all Python side projects. When it was announced that Terry Jones had died recently, it came as no surprise since his illness had been announced a long time ago. But since his death, I've watched plenty of clips of Jones and the Pythons on Netflix and YouTube, many of which I'd never seen before. And his intelligence and knowledge of history was quite astounding, really. I had heard about it, all the uh, Pythons, the British ones, went to uh, prestigious uh, universities in England, so uh, it wasn't that surprising, but I just never thought about it that much. Also, when I was watching these uh, famous clips, I noticed something unique about his role in the Pythons. Of course, he had directed two and a half of the Pythons movies, and his attention to detail was uh, one of the most important factors in the success of those films. It was also interesting to compare his role to those of the other Pythons. For example, we all know John Cleese and his silly walks, Graham Chapman's The Colonel character, Michael Palin's sleazy game show host, and Eric Idle's Nudge Nudge, which was performed with Jones. But uh, Terry Jones is more of a chameleon. He performed many of the most memorable bits hidden in his character. He's the naked organ player in the show's intro. He's often the stuffy businessman, He's the one in drag reading the spam, spam, spam menu. And as Mr. Creosote, the most disgusting yet hilariously over-the-top characters ever to disgrace a movie screen in uh, Meaning of Life. It's a bit of a shame I hadn't recognized this talent until after his death, but his contributions to Python were much larger than I had noticed during his lifetime. I am honored I got to push a Volkswagen with him. The death of Neil Innes affected me more than I thought it would. He was a regular presence on Twitter and occasionally commented on my tweets. I had four separate interactions with Neil Innes, sort of, uh, over the years. The first was when uh, he escaped the autograph hounds at the city center. However, I went to a sound check with a friend of mine when Neil was playing the old House of Blues in Cambridge, Mass. with the old Tango in October 2001. I brought some items to sign, including my city center playbill, the one with one missing signature. He almost gasped uh, with the memory of these shows when I presented it to him, and he happily signed it a quarter of a century later. 
I uh, saw him two more times, uh, once in the fall of 2004 at the Regent Theatre in Arlington, Massachusetts, and again in May 2011 at the Narrow Center in Fall River. Again, both very brief but pleasurable encounters at the end of the show. After his death, someone described him as one of the most talented, yet least ambitious artists he knew. He appeared to be very grateful and genuinely surprised at the continuing legacy of the Ruddles. If you are unfamiliar with the Ruddles, which was an affectionate parody of the Beatles with Neil as the Lennon-esque Ron Nasty, as well as the brilliant songwriter behind the music, either watch the original All You Need Is Cash, uh, which has slightly different edits in various territories, or get the Rhino CD or the sequel, Archaeology. In addition to his social media presence, often very political in nature, he was anti-Brexit, passionately, uh, he was recently a guest on the Fab Forum program on Sirius XM's The Beatles channel and on multiple podcasts, often graciously telling the same anecdotes to familiar questions, but each with a different detail here and there. Neil was planning a U.S. Ruddles tour, which I was very much looking forward to. There was a bizarre lawsuit over the name Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, which rightfully was returned to the surviving members and a celebration was planned and it will go on in Neil's honor and memory. Neil was also the victim of a uh, problem getting funding for his next album, which was uh, getting resolved at the time of his death. And not to mention the uh, publishing lawsuit over his Reynolds compositions um, which were eventually returned to him, I believe. Basically, he was a nice guy in a nasty world. After Terry Jones' death, uh, John Cleese ended his uh, tweeted tribute with the phrase, two down, four to go, updated from the one down, five to go uh, kind of motto <laughs> uh, after Chapman's death. But in reality, it's a three down, five to go, if you include Carl Cleveland and, of course, Neil Innes. There's plenty of authorized Python on Netflix and some more elsewhere if you know where to look, like uh, Hulu, where uh, the first five years of Saturday Night Live are archived. There's also my Boston Herald podcast blogger page. Now, as it said on the screen at the end of uh, Python's performances in front of audiences, piss off. Uh, see you soon and uh, take care. <laughs>